We're going to jump into it this morning. In fact, James chapter 1 says, God cannot be tempted by evil. But as we continue in our Gospel of Matthew series, when we hit chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 1 right away says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So if Jesus is God, and we know he's God, I mean, he says all over the New Testament that he is the Son of God. He proves it. He dies on the cross. He's buried. He raises from the grave. Only God can do that. And we know that he has a divine nature. But there's something else the Bible tells us over and over. While Jesus walked the earth, he also had what you and I have, and that's a human nature. And that's the nature that can be tempted. And so here in Matthew chapter 4, you have the devil trying to appeal to Jesus' human nature to get it to go against his divine nature. And so what we see is it happens over a period of 40 days. And by the way, anytime you see the number 40 in the Bible, it's always like a rough time, a time of trial. It is. This is never good. You know, 40 days of, you know, rain and uh, the days of Noah. You've got 40 years in the wilderness if you're Israel. And now you've got 40 days where Jesus is fasting and he's hungry. And Satan comes along and begins to tempt him and says, let's talk about food. And so, so right away, you've got this rough spot for Jesus. And we can go, well, why? Why tempt Jesus? Or better yet, why tempt us? Why do we need to go through temptation? Why? What's the big deal about temptation? And if you were to dig it into the, uh, the Old Testament and look at the ancient Hebrew and when, it, when that word temptation or tempted comes up, and uh, you'd find the same results that if you were to dig in the ancient Greek in the New Testament when it comes to the word to be tempted— It means to be tested. To be tested, it's a test. And you may say, Tom, well, is that a sin? No, no, it's not a sin. It's a test. Now, if you fail the test, it could definitely be sin. It could lead to sin. But it's actually a test. In fact, it's a test that allows us to see where we are. It measures us. It measures the the quality and quantity of who we are. Temptation is not a sin. It's a test that identifies where you are in your maturity and in your journey. It was uh, March when a letter entered the Goodlett household from the county of uh, Pinellas. And, and it was talking about our older son, Parker, and uh, that the, they're looking at some of his early test scores. And when it came to reading, and they said, you know, here's some options maybe to help Parker along in reading. And so as we're reading this letter in March, we're realizing they're looking at his reading test scores back in January. And we're thinking, you know, I think a lot has changed since January to March. How how far is he behind in reading? And so we go ahead and we talk to his teacher. She's not too worried. She thinks he's farther ahead than than he is. But, But the reality is we don't know where Parker is. And so we all agree the only way to find out is to test Parker that day. And so, so sure enough, Parker has to take a test in reading. We find he's actually way ahead of where he should be. And so, but we then know what our next steps are to take. See, nobody likes a test. Nobody's going, oh, please, give me another one. You know, but it's, it's inevitable. Temptation is not a sin. It's a test. And perhaps you might be sitting there today and you say, I don't struggle with temptation. Maybe it's because you already failed. You know, maybe you're just so used to going, yeah, I'll do that. You know, that, that you're just done. It's not even a struggle anymore. You just keep failing the test, so it's really not a test at all. But it's inevitable. 
It's inevitable if we're going to walk with, with God. And it helps us measure where we actually are within the journey. You see, for Jesus, he's about to start this whole ministry thing. But first, got to see, can Jesus handle all that Satan can throw at him? The devil thought he had a chance. The devil spends plenty of time trying to test Jesus, hoping to appeal to that human nature, to get it to go against the divine nature. And so we see the measure of who Jesus is. And the devil does the same thing to us. See, if we're going to understand the test, we need to understand how it's put together. And so this morning, if we're going to talk about temptation, we need to know what makes it temptation. How is it put together? So if you've got your Bibles, now's the opportunity to open them up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and, and hold that thought there, because first I need to tell you a little bit about Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> See, if you were to look at chapter 1, you'd see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you start reading it, and it's in poetic form. It's, it's written out like a poem, or as many scholars believe, a song. That perhaps God sang the earth into being. In other words, it's this big Broadway musical. There's light, and there's darkness, and there's, there's land, and there's sea, and there's birds, and there's fish. And then God sings humanity into being. And then in chapter 2... We see Adam, the first created man, open his mouth for the first time. And if you look at the words he says, guess what? It's in poetic form, or better yet, song. Adam sings, and when does he sing? It's when God presents woman to Adam, his wife. And the first thing that comes out of man's mouth is song about woman. It's like the first Marvin Gaye tune. I mean, you, you, it is. You can look at it. It's like, you were made from me. You were made for me. You should leave mom and dad, and let's get it on. That's, it's... It's biblical. It's totally there. Read it. And so there's singing. But there's another player in the story who you need to understand, and that's, that's Satan. See, what we find about, out about Satan in later text is that Satan used to be an angel in God's presence. He, Satan used to exist in heaven. However, he rebelled against God, and as punishment, he ends, up getting, he ends up falling down to earth. And so Satan's just been settling into his new dreary home earth, when all of a sudden, who moves in? The Disney musical next door. This couple, you know, and they've got this paradise, and all they do is sing all day about how they love God and how they love each other. It, it reminds me of that newlywed apartment that Erica and I moved into. You, you know, the one with the paper-thin walls and where you can hear your neighbors next door, every verb and noun in their sentences, and, and especially when they argue. And, uh, or you hear it when they bought the new surround sound system that they mo- must have needed for their small apartment. And, uh, and, and they love to watch movies late at night, right? You know, they crank it up so you can hear too. And, and, uh, and there you are in bed, and, and, you know, and I, I just remember like, thinking, like, how can I get in there and break that thing? You know, how, or better yet, how could I work it out that they get kicked out of the apartments? Or, or, or maybe if I could just kill them off slowly, but it wouldn't get traced back to me. Don't, don't act like you've never had those thoughts. That's Satan's situation. This couple, all they do is sing. They've moved in next door. How can I break this thing? How can I get these guys kicked out? How can I kill them off slowly? Satan has to go with strategy in, the, in this next moment. So let's look. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so he said to woman, Why does Satan go after the woman first? 
See, I think there's some more parts of Satan's story that are worth knowing. Not only did he exist in the heavenly realms, we know that he was Lucifer in, in the heavenly realms, and he was the most beautiful of all angels, it says. That, that Lucifer was the epitome of what it meant to be beautiful in God's sight. However, when Lucifer, when he rebels against God, he gets ugly fast in his fall. And we don't see the next epitome of beauty until the creation of woman. All of a sudden, God creates woman, and now she is the example of what it means to be beautiful in God's sight. You see, for Satan, it's personal. It's personal. He gets to go after her because she is what he once was. And he still does it today. Satan still goes after woman. And you know what he attacks her with? He says, you're not so beautiful. You could be prettier than you are. You should get some work done. You're not so beautiful is what he says. It's still the lie. Why? Because he's jealous. For Satan, it's personal. And so he goes after the woman first. And if you know the story, you know the conversation. He asked the woman, says, hey, are you allowed to eat like whatever you want, anytime you want from anywhere? And, and the woman says, well, no. He says, we're, supposed to, we're allowed to eat from any tree we want except for one tree in particular. God said this, it would be harmful for us to eat from this tree. And, and Satan says right away, no, no, don't listen to that. God's not being honest with you. In fact, God doesn't want you to eat that because you're going to get an edge on God if you eat from that tree. Now, I think when we look at the context of where this conversation is happening, it kind of implies that the woman is near this tree, or, or at least close enough that they can point to it and talk about it in the distance and eventually reach out for it. And by the way, Adam is right next to her. We know that later in the text. It's not like he's off in the distance. He's standing with her in this conversation. I'm not saying they're in the danger zone. I'm just saying they're close enough to it to talk about it. You see, Satan would like us to believe he's more powerful than he actually is. Satan can't just keep bombarding us with temptation. Satan has to be strategic about when and where he does it. And so in this case, perhaps Satan is waiting for them just to get close enough to the danger zone to have a conversation about the danger zone. When it comes to Jesus, he, he waits till 40 days of Jesus is fasting and he's hungry and says, let's talk about food now. Satan has to have strategy because he's not powerful enough to do anything else. I love how James, in chapter 1 of James, it kind of just maps out Satan's strategy. just kind of puts it all out there. You can read it on there. You don't have to turn to it. But it's James 1 verse 14. It says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. You see, temptation takes the form in about at least three stages. The first of which is it arouses the heart. It arouses the heart. Satan goes after a desire that's already there at some level. It's not necessarily a bad desire, but Satan pushes it to an extreme. Satan goes after the, uh, each of us in specific ways, ways that we are wired, ways of our personality. In other words, we don't sin at random. We don't. You think about the sins we return to over and over. They're predictable. They have a consistent path, and they're connected to how God created us. In his book, The Me That I Want to Be, it's uh, John Ortberg. He calls them signature sins. That there are specific sins, and if we, it wouldn't take us that long to figure them out because they're the sins we continually go back to over and over. They're the sins we do to perfection. 
They're the sins that we know. If, if Satan just had to pick one sin to destroy my entire life, for me, he would go after this particular sin. It's like a chef that has a specialty dish that it, after a while kind of defines him. They're sins that are specific to us, signature to us. And they're tied to good things that God has created. They're tied to good desires. They're just twisted. And, and you may, perhaps God created you and, and you're an outgoing person. And Satan wants to take that desire and push it to where you're an inappropriate person. Or, or maybe you're one of those people who's kind of quiet. You like to think about things, keep them to yourself. And Satan likes to take that and get you to kind of stuff some things in and really pack it down in there. So eventually you just explode one day. Or maybe you've been wired to where you're, you're a giving person. You like to serve. And Satan just wants to tri- just trip that up enough so that it becomes manipulation. They're signature sins, desires in our heart that Satan goes after. His plot to destroy humanity is to take the desires of our heart and to turn them into selfish wants. And for the woman, Satan goes after a desire in her heart. He goes after lust. You may say, well, Tom, I'm reading the scripture. There's nothing sexual in here. No, no. Hear me out. Lust isn't always sexual. Lust at its very core is discontentment. Lust is when we tell God, God, I know what you've given me, but I've decided it's not enough. Lust is when we look at God's provision and all the blessings he's given and we tell God, yeah, that's not going to do it. I still want and need this. I know what you've given me, God, but I need more money. I know what you've given me, God, but I need more food. I need more sex. I need more thrills. I need, I need, I need. You can see it start to happen to the woman. In fact, you can see it in verse 6. It says this, it said, when she saw the fruit of the tree, she saw that it was good for food. In other words, it just starts with a natural desire within, within all of us. Hunger. I'm hungry. Never mind, God said I could eat from any of these trees I want. No, no, no. What I really need is that tree. What I really need is that food. That food's going to be good for me. I've decided, yeah, God's given me that, but that's not enough. I want that one now. See, after he arouses the heart... The next thing the temptation does is it attacks the mind. It gets things all confusing. Satan's plot is if he could turn our faith into distrust for God. In other words, yeah, I know God said that to you, but what if he's lying to you? What if there's more to it and you don't know it? And he's trying to keep you down some way. You see, because the motions are stirred, the mind is already messed up. If you arouse the heart, all of a sudden the mind is prepared to receive a lie. We're not thinking clearly with temptation. I mean, that's what kind of distinguishes us from all the other created beings, is our ability to reason, is our ability to to be rational. But when the emotions are so stirred up within the heart and there's this desire of, I need, I need, I need, well, well, all of a sudden we're not thinking rationally, we're irrational. And then we go a step further and we start rationalizing what we're about to do. And we start going, yeah, I really need this. And it catches the eye. And once it catches the eye, it begins to entertain the mind. And pleasure comes into play. It becomes pleasing to the mind. It's why we say, no, I don't want to touch. I just want to peek. I just want to look. We're still pleasing the mind aesthetically. There's something about it catching the eye. It becomes more tantalizing. And and all of a sudden, we just, pleasure's involved. I mean, you could see it happen in the mind of the woman in verse 6. 
She looks at the fruit of the tree. It's good for food, and it's pleasing to the eye. You see, at its core, temptation seemingly offers the avoidance of pain and the indulgence of pleasure. Short term. Short term. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. Pleasure comes from God. God's all about pleasure. His pleasure is just long term. His his avoidance of pain is heaven. It's long term. But what temptation does, it says, how about the short term? And presents it, this idea. I mean, we're all experts in the fact that sin is fun. It's fun. Or else we wouldn't be tempted to do that. It's fun in the short term. The, The irony is that often it's the long term that you've just created more pain, that you've just created less pleasure. But, that's, but the mind's not thinking clearly at that time. It's attacked the mind. And once it's aroused the heart, it's pierced the heart, it's pierced the brain, it's lethal. By the time it gets to this, this stage two in temptation, it's desperately, it's, it's difficult to not give in. Because the third thing it does, it locks it in. It appeals to the ego. It appeals to this sense that we can be our own God. In other words, we don't need any guidance. We don't need any input. We can use our own wisdom. I can make my own mistakes. I don't need anybody else's input. It only affects me. It appeals to our pride. Our pride. You can see it in verse 6. Again, she looks at the fruit. It's good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. And it's desirable for gaining wisdom. In other words, this is my leg up. This is where it makes me smart. We want to believe we can be smarter than we are. We want to believe we are better than we are. We are stronger than we are. We are more important than we are. It it appeals to our ego. I was watching this show um, where this guy was interviewing a well-known atheist. Very, very smart man. And the interviewer said to the atheist, he said, let's just suppose that you're wrong. Let's suppose that there is a God. And the moment you realize there is a God is when you die. You die and you wake up. And all of a sudden, the next thing is you find yourself there in the throne room of Almighty God. What would you do? And the atheist just kind of got all puffed up. And he said, well, the first thing I would do is I would walk right up to God. And I would say, how dare you? How dare you allow such atrocities to exist in this world? And it was about this moment in the TV show where my mind just kind of took a break for a second. I just thought, well, wait a minute. Anytime anybody in the Old Testament or the New Testament saw God in all his glory, you know what they did? They fell face down, either in worship or dead. They did. There was nobody walking up to God, let alone opening their mouth or controlling their bodily functions. I mean, it is God. He is in all his glory. And you're seeing him in all his glory. And then there's you. You know, there's no comparison. There's no conversation to be had. It's God in all his glory. You're face down, man. We're not God. We're not equal. And you may say, well, Tom, I got questions like that for God. Great. Great. If you got Jesus, you're a friend of God. You can ask all the questions you want and get all the truth from the actual source. But there's no way we're equal with God. We're not that good. We're not that strong. We're not that smart. You know the rest of the story. The woman, she takes the fruit and she eats it. And then there's Adam. He's been there the whole time. He hears the conversation. And I read one commentary when I was studying for this. It says, this is the point in time where Adam just really contemplated whether or not to eat the fruit. 
In other words, this was the time he heard the conversation. He knew what the woman had done was wrong. He, he knew that uh, this would separate her from God. And then he felt compassion for the woman. He didn't want her to be all separated from God by herself. And so he went ahead and he reached out and he took the fruit, almost as if it was a noble gesture. After much contemplation, Adam decided to eat the fruit. You know what the scripture says? She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. There is nothing to indicate that this was a big contemplative decision for Adam. There is everything to indicate that when presented with sin, Adam fell like a house of cards. I mean, it's a naked woman offering food. Guys, that's like two of her favorite things right there. You, you throw in a nap, it's over. It's done. Don't act like we're better than we are. We are not as strong as we think we are or want to be. In fact, if we're honest, we probably fail this test more than we pass it. We probably fail temptation more than we succeed. We, we probably realize more than not that we're not as close to God as we thought we were. We're not as in step with his plan as we were hoping. And that most often we fail the test. So what do you do? What can we do? If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, and we look at Jesus, uh, you, we can ask the question, if Jesus is God, how could he be tempted? Or perhaps this morning, the better question is, if Jesus is man, how could he resist temptation? I think the indication, or one clue, is, is just in verse 1. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You see, Jesus has something that not everybody has. It's available to everyone through Jesus. And that is the Holy Spirit of God. We all have the human nature. We all got that thing inherent within us. But it's only through Jesus that we can have God's nature, His Holy Spirit indwelt within us. And the only way is when we give our heart to God's Son. If you've never made that decision to give your heart over to Jesus, if you've never decided to let, allow Him to be Lord and Savior of your life, then you can just stop right now. Because you're just going to be fighting a losing battle. There is no battle. There is no struggle without the spirit to war against the human nature. And the only way to receive it is through Jesus. And when we close here in about five minutes, we're going to sing a song. There's going to be prayer partners down front. And you will have the opportunity, if you've never had done it before, to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. In fact, I don't care if you listen to anything else I have to say. That's your decision today. Step one, start there because the rest is a losing battle. You need Jesus and you need his spirit. And when, when Satan goes after Jesus, he says, let's talk about food. Let's talk about you turning uh, stones to bread and you eating. And Jesus says back to Satan, he says, man does not live on bread alone, but, but only on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you know what Jesus is quoting here? Scripture. It's a scripture about scripture. You want to overcome temptation? Give your mind to God's word. Give your mind over to God's word. We're going to talk about in weeks to come the power of God's word and how to speak it into your life. But I want to share with you one opportunity you have today if you have not taken advantage of this already. And that is to not just to be in God's word but not just be in it alone. 
You have the opportunity to sign up for a group, to be a part of a group of people. And when we get together in groups, we open up the Bible. We look and put our mind into God's Word and allow His Word to infiltrate our mind. And we talk about it and we apply it and we discuss it and we make it tangible in our lives. You want to overcome temptation? Load up. Load up on God's Word. Fill your mind with that so there's no room for anything else. It's the weapon Jesus uses every time. In fact, the next thing is Satan presents Jesus with pleasure. He says, how about you jump off this high point and feel what it's like to have angels catch you? And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Satan goes, the next part, he appeals to his ego and he says, you know, how about we get everybody to just worship you and you get to feel how great that is. All you got to do is worship me a little. And Jesus quotes scripture again and says, love the Lord your God and worship him only. Jesus doesn't have time to mess around with Satan. He's got bigger and better things to do. And if you want to be able to resist temptation, then give your life to God's work. Have something better to do than get in trouble. I'm talking about, I know sometimes we we sit here and we talk about what it would be like to serve. Well, serve. Or what it would be like to give. It's time to give. What would it be like to just be Jesus to somebody else, to love on somebody who so desperately needs to know what that looks like? You see, we're like water. Water, when it's moving, it's clear, it's clean, it's useful. But when water sits still for too long, it gets ugly. And sometimes we just sit for too long, and we allow temptation to creep in. And all of a sudden, next thing we know, we're gossiping. Next thing we know, we're critiquing other people that are actually moving while we're sitting. You don't want to give temptation an edge? Find what God is doing and be a part of it. Give your life to God's work. Do ministry. There's plenty to do. You see, we know that woman and and Adam, they failed the test, but the story's not over. God gives them the test results. He goes, you failed. This is what's going to happen now. It's not what I would desire for you, but it's just happening. It it goes, now uh, work's going to be tough. It's not going to be so fulfilling. And, and raising kids, it's going to be rough, starting with childbirth. And, and, and now there's going to be uh, chauvinisms into the world now. Now there's going to be feminism. And man and woman, you're going to have a hard time getting along. But then God turns to Satan. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says this. He says to the serpent, Because you have done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And in your Bible, it may say something like between the seed of Satan and the seed of woman. If you were to look at that word seed in the ancient Hebrew, it would be the word sperm. It'd be the word, which is kind of strange. Not necessarily with the Satan part. The sperm of Satan, okay, that's whatever. But it'd be a sperm that resides within woman. Which if you're Jewish and that's kind of all you know, it's just a weird verse. This this idea of there's this pre-existent sperm that exists within woman doesn't make much sense until down the line somewhere there might be something like, I don't know, an immaculate conception. And then it says as a result of this, there will be a he, and it's a special he in the Hebrew. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, Satan, you are going to hurt this special he, but he will crush you. He will crush you. It's over. It's done. God shares right there. It's not the end of the story. Yeah, here's the predicament, but guess what? I'm just getting started with the plan. I was a 
teenager when I borrowed my dad's car to go out on a date. An 83 Nissan Sentra. Chick magnet, if you didn't know. It's, uh... I picked up my date. We start pulling out of the cul-de-sac. Boom! Failure to yield is what my traffic ticket said as the guy was coming across and I hit his back end. The date was over. She walked home. I, I spent the rest of my evening in the back of a police car with flashing lights filling out paperwork. My mom and dad, they were on a date themselves, and it was before cell phones, and so they're out watching a movie, and they stop the movie, and they go over the intercom. They say, Mr. and Mrs. Goodlett, your son has been in a car accident. Would you please come to the front? (laughs) When my parents arrived on the scene of the accident, I could tell right away they were relieved that I was okay, and and then they were really, really angry. (laughs) I had dented the front end of the car. It was this grin kind of smiling back at me, not in a good way. And uh, we were able to get the car back home. And I remember, I remember being up in, in my, my second story room that looked out to the front yard and to the driveway. I remember sitting on my bed. And then I remember hearing this. The sound of metal on metal. I looked out into the driveway and there's my dad standing on top of the hood of the car with a sledgehammer trying to dent the grill of the car back into place. I remember that sound because every time I heard it, my heart stopped. I thought, I did that. I messed this up. I failed the test. Eventually, I got up the courage to go downstairs, out through the garage, and there's my dad standing with the sledgehammer. And the first thing he did was he looked at me and he said, do you want to help? And I remember thinking, yes. That's all I want to do is help. I made this mess. Let me help somehow clean this up. And so for the rest of the evening, Dad and I worked on the car and put it back together as best we could. You see, woman does not get her name till after she fails the test. It doesn't happen till verse 20 of chapter 3. God says, I have a plan. And so Adam turns to his wife and he gives her the name Eve, which means life giver. Life giver. It's God's way of saying to woman, I know you messed this up. So did Adam. I know you were the first to bring death into this world. But how would you like to be the first now to bring life? Life giver. The name waits for each one of us. Do you want to help? As God says, how would you like to bring life into a world that is dying? How would you like to bring light into a world full of darkness? How would you like to be Jesus to somebody who doesn't have a clue what that looks like? How would you like to love on somebody in a way that would just blow their mind because that's the kind of love that Jesus has? How would you like to be part of the plan? Yeah, I know you failed the test, but how would you like to be now part of the plan, the solution? You see, if we were to put ourselves there, 
at the climax of the plan. On that day, you would see a dusty hill. You would see men carrying wood up to the top of the hill. You would see the Roman soldiers as they take that special he, that him, that guy, as he's getting his heels struck, they would place him on the cross and you would hear, you would hear it loud, metal upon metal. And you would know, you did this. You helped mess this up. You and the rest of us failed the test. And as you would listen, perhaps you could see. Perhaps you could just see his face between the the sound of metal on metal piercing his flesh. If you could just see his face, if you could just make eye contact, you would hear his heart and it would say to you, I'm about to show this whole world, every person in it, how much I love them. Do you want to help? 